0: not worthy of Him. And so here's the crisis, here's the moment of decision. I will confess to you that this morning I feel like a traveler, a tourist who has been off on a trip and has seen great sights and wonders and has taken 3,000 photographs and I have been told I have but a little time to compress all that uh, into just a few pictures. Uh, just this passage of scripture is enough to keep you going for a very, very long time, So. Um, if you need to, call your reservations and cancel them uh, because we're settling in. Our topic this morning is God. Now you know why there's more to be said than can be said. But in particular, God as he is shown to be in the opening verses of the book of Revelation. For the past seven weeks, we have been looking at the letters that Christ dictates to the churches. We found out that Jesus is not very impressed with big churches. He's not very impressed with busy churches. He is not impressed with wealthy churches or churches that have a lot of prestige. It seems as though the church that Jesus really likes is the church that may be poor, it may be struggling, it may be thought to be weak, but it is a church that has a passion for Jesus Christ and a willingness, a wholehearted willingness to endure suffering for the sake of his name. This is the church that Jesus loves. We have been hearing what the Spirit says to the churches and we have been called again and again to embrace Christ in our world knowing that the trajectory of our society and of our culture is leading us into a collision path and that the days are coming soon when it will cost us something to claim and bear the name of Christ. And so we have been looking at that. Now that was chapters 2 and 3. We're returning now to chapter 1 to see how the foundation for all of that was set down as John is given this book of Revelation. Uh, He begins in verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is the way that a letter begins. And in point of fact, the book of Revelation is a letter. It is also a prophecy. It is also an apocalypse. But it is also a letter, a real word of God written to real people in a real time, in real places in history. And uh, as we went through the seven letters, we saw how real it was to know Jesus Christ. And so John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now this is the typical greeting uh, that would come from a Greek person who would say grace. Uh, their actual word was uh, hail, but uh, it's the same word in the Greek that leads to the word grace. And so when John says grace to you, he is picking up on a typical uh, Greek Greeting, And when he says, peace to you, he's picking up on a typical Jewish greeting, shalom, as it is used even today. And so um, John says, grace to you and peace. But it's not just sort of offhanded. It's a very specific grace and a very specific peace. And this is from God. Now here is how he describes that. He says, grace and peace to you from the one, from him, who is and who was and who is to come now this phrase strikes me it seems to me that if you submitted it in in a composition paper in your English composition class you would fail because the balance of it should be who is who was and who will be it should be a past tense a present tense and a future tense of the verb to be but in point of fact it is who is who was and then he shifts to the verb to come he who is To come, and that is the arresting part of this description of God that He is a God who comes. First off, He is the God who is. The overwhelming reality with which you and I must deal is the reality of God. The reality of the creator who brought the whole universe into being, the creator who brought us into being, the creator who gave us life and who demands of us obedience and reverence and praise, there is a God and that changes everything. This God is not uh, banished to the far corners of the universe, nor is this God to be relegated to the afterthoughts of philosophy, but this God is. He is present now, present among us. This God is. And that's the overriding reality with which we must deal first off. When Moses met God at the burning bush, God said, here's who you should think of me. Uh, Here's my name. I am This God is the God who is. But then he goes on to say, and the God who was... And the interesting thing about that is the God who is, is the same God who was. We look at the God who was, we read about him in the scripture, we read about the great things he has done, we read about the great miracles, the way in which he guided the people out of Egypt, gave them freedom, guided them through the the wilderness, brought them to a promised land, established a kingdom, preserved them even in spite of their rebellion, brought forth the Messiah, established the church, shepherd her uh, her through the opening pages of her history. We read about the. The God who was. Well, the point is the God who was is the same God as the God who is. He has not changed at all. He is still mighty and marvelous. He is still magnificent in his sovereignty. He is still the God who is able to do all things. He is the God who delivered the children of Israel. And that God who was able is able now to deliver us. And so John says this is the God with whom we are dealing This great God who is and who was. But understand he is the God who is to come. The book of Revelation is largely about the coming of God to the world. In fact, if you want a subtitle for the book of Revelation, it might be something like this. Just wait until your father gets home. You remember how that used to transform the day? You remember how suddenly your behavior was a little bit different? Just wait until your father gets home. Well, now I'm going to behave a little differently. Now I realize I've got to clean up a little bit. I I need to alter my behavior. I need to take into account that father is coming home. Folks, God is coming. He is a coming God. We know this from the pages of history. For when Moses met God at the burning bush, it was not Moses who sought God out. It was God who came to Moses. When Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, it was not Abraham who went and found God. It was God who came to Abraham. When Isaiah saw the glory and the majesty of God in the temple, it was not Isaiah who decided he would bring down God. But it was God who came to Isaiah. When Jesus was born, it is not because we sent a committee up into heaven and invited him to come down into our midst but he came to us because God comes to us. He takes the initiative he is the one who delivers us he is a God who comes this is not just a great, great uh, comfort to read about in the pages of history but it is a great, great comfort to live with that knowledge today for wherever you are in life and how hopeless life might be, how dark it might be You may be able to identify infinitely with the dark inner prison without windows and without light in which Paul and Silas found themselves yet singing hymns. You might understand what it means to feel abandoned and left alone. Here is the truth. God comes to you. You do not need to reach up and bring him down. By his grace, his love, and his mercy, God is a coming God. He is the God who is, who was, and he is the God who is to come. Let us understand that as the revelation teaches us that God is coming, and when he comes, those who know him and those who love him, those who have embraced his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, will rejoice to see him come. But those who have rejected him, those who hate him, those who want nothing to do with him, the coming of God will be the display of their rebellion and their sin. And that display will be a cause of mourning and weeping and And so our God is coming. And when he comes, he will make everything known. The things that you said in secret will be declared openly. The things that you did in private will be put and shouted from the housetops. When Christ comes, when our God comes, then all of life is put under the lamp of his glory. Our God is a coming God. Unless you think that this is just a casual phrase that is just sort of thrown in for the, the symmetry of the phraseology, look at verse 8. When you get to verse 8, you're basically reading the theme of the book of Revelation. This is what it's all about. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. In other words, uh, he says, I'm I'm A to Z. I'm the first letter, I'm the last letter, I'm every letter in between. I'm the beginning of history, I'm the ending of history, I'm the meaning of history, I'm the content of history. He says, I'm the first of creation, I'm the last of creation, and all of creation in between. And so God says, I am the first and the last. You see, if you lived back then... And received those seven letters that we just read these past several weeks together. You would have been thinking to yourself what is history all about? What is life all about? I received Christ and I lost my house. I praised God and I lost my job. I said that Jesus Christ is Lord and my neighbors turned on me. I declared the glory of God and I was thrown into prison. And now I have said that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and they're feeding me to the lions. What's going on here? Let me tell you. God is the first and the last he's the alpha and the omega and the experience of our lives fits into his design for history we don't see it yet because we don't have enough intellectual capacity to comprehend all that God is doing in our lives but he is working in us to bring us from his a to his the from alpha to omega for his glory and so that's why you need to know this that's that's the that's the 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 teaching of the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. God himself repeats that phrase. Now God tells us to think of him in many, many ways. Think of him as a majestic king. Think of him as a loving father. Think of him as the shepherd. Think of him as the deliverer. Think of him as the redeemer. But here God's word tells us, think of him as the one who is to come. He is coming. That's how important it is. So ours is a God who comes. By the way, the last phrase he says, the the almighty. He who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And of course we go right by that because everybody knows God is the Almighty. In fact, it's used as an invective sometimes, and and so you know, so look. God Almighty occurs as a phrase, as a title for God, only ten times in the New Testament. It's very common in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament occurs only ten times. Nine of those times are in the book of Revelation. The other time is in a quotation of the Old Testament that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. And so when we read the Almighty, that is connected to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a focus on the nature of God. He is Almighty, the Greek there is Pantikrator. It is a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh Sabaoth. Uh, we, we read that in English as the Lord of hosts. Uh, Yahweh is the name of God. Sabaoth comes from Saba. Saba is a soldier. Sabaoth is the plural. And so Sabaoth are the soldiers are the armies. And so God is Lord of the armies. He is God of the hosts of heaven to accomplish all his purposes. Oh, if you lived back in the first century, you were asking that question. Who's got the army? I see Caesar's army. I see his soldiers. They're in my life every day. They're annoying me every day. They're persecuting me every day. He's got a vast army. He's conquered the whole known world. God says, I'm the one who is, who was, and I'm coming. When I do, I'm almighty. I've got an army that no one can stop. I've got an army that will roll through the cities. I've got an army that will cover the countrysides. I've got an army that can cross every river and breach every wall. I am am the God of the armies that will win victory, not just a temporary victory, but a victory for all eternity. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Almighty. And he is coming. Okay. So that's where we are. Um, to who who So grace and peace from this God who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, the revelation refers to the Holy Spirit in the singular, in the letters. It says, you know, hear what the spirit, singular, says to the churches. So why is this seven spirits? The number seven is a number of completion and perfection. In other words, the fullness and the perfection of the Holy Spirit is before the throne of God. The Holy Spirit to accomplish the purposes of God. The Holy Spirit to go forth and to change lives and to turn hearts and to change our will so that we might turn to God in love and adoration. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's before the throne of God. And uh, John says, grace and peace to you from the Holy Spirit. We could dwell on this for a very long time. Time eludes us, however. We move on. And, verse 5, and... from Jesus Christ. By the way, none of you need me to point this out. We'll do anyway. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. You have here the Trinity. Circle it, highlight it, write it in the margins, put a bookmark there. The next time somebody says Trinity's not in the Bible, yeah, the Word isn't, but the truth is. And we have it right here. The fullness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bringing grace and peace to us. But look how Christ is described. He says, Christ, the faithful witness. Christ was faithful in his life coming to earth and living a sinless life but his faithful witness extended to the cross where on the cross he died for our sins you do know that the Greek word for witness is the word martyr we think a martyr is only someone who dies but a martyr is someone who bears witness and testimony and whether that leads out and out to death or whether it is just a matter of standing up and bearing testimony we are called to be a faithful witness Jesus Christ is a faithful witness to the grace and the mercy of God by dying on the cross for us. He is the faithful witness and he is the firstborn of the dead. That isn't by the glory of the resurrection. He is declared with power to be the son of God. This Jesus raised from the dead, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Let me tell you something. Caesar is not Lord. There is no king who is sovereign. There is no prime minister who has the right to rule. And there is no president who can control our souls. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. And he is King of kings and President of presidents. He alone rules. He is the King of all kings of the earth. And so, You know, when you're in the middle of the frustration and the persecution, this God comes to us, and we have seen that, and we know it in Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign king and ruler. This God comes to us. and Grace and peace come to us from this this triune God, marvelous and uh, majestic. Now, from him, grace and peace come to us. To him, then John goes on to say, says to him who loves us, And oh, how we could stop here for a while. Uh, I'll just just give it to you this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that there is nothing, not height nor depth nor any other creature that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him who loves us. You know, all the issues of self-worth and all the issues of, of whether or not my life is meaningful, all the issues of purpose are wrapped up in this assertion of scripture and that is Jesus loves us and that changes everything absolutely but he loves us to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood on the cross when he died our sins were put to death our unrighteousness put on him his righteousness put on us his blood then used to cleanse us from our sin. We are set free from sin, from the bondage of sin and from the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ has done this for us. He has done this as the God who is, who was, and who is to come. All right. And made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, that is to serve, to worship, to adore, to bring others to him, all those things, a priest to his God and Father, to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. You say it. Amen. <laughs> That's right. See, again, you, you, you've got to understand... Where we're going in this book, you know, we, we, we sort of have a glimpse of it with the letters to the churches, but we're walking into territory filled with persecution. And we're walking into a road where the signposts ahead announce that it's going to be costly to bear the name of Jesus. And right out of the box, John says, look, he freed us from our sins. He loved us that much. And because of that, he deserves all the glory and all the dominion. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just hang in there a little bit longer. You do know that the closer you get to a victory, the harder Satan works to make you give up. You know that, don't you? Because Jesus is coming. Any moment, he comes to us in small ways. Haven't you experienced that? Haven't there been times when suddenly, without your asking, without your claiming, without your working, yet the presence of God came to you in such a real unmistakable way that you just knew in a way that went beyond just the exercise of the intellect, you knew the reality of God and the presence of Christ in your life? Just hang on. Christ is coming to your life. And hang on. Hang on. Let us tell the world that Satan is not winning. The dragon is not able to wipe out those who are the offspring of the woman who bear the testimony of Christ. The two beasts are not able to bring an end to the church, the body of Christ. The harlot city is not able to persecute her out of existence. For Jesus is coming, and when he does, the harlot city will fall, the beast will be slain, and the dragon will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is coming. Hang on. He's going to be here. So be dominion forever. Amen. Now, verse 7, uh, you, you can sort of think of it as uh, the front cover of a book. You know how when you buy a book, they, they, the editors have put a, a piece of artwork on there and a, and a title and, and maybe a sentence to try to draw you in to the book. You, you turn it over and on the back cover there, there's a little blurb and a little explanation and just sort of get your mind rolling in the direction that the book is going to, to take you. Well, verse 7 is kind of like that for the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's what's going to get us going and, and understand what the Revelation is talking about. In verse 7, behold, he is coming. That's it. He is coming. When Christians have ever been downtrodden, when they have ever been abused and persecuted, when the church has stood on the very edges of extinction, Christians have turned to one another and they have said, Behold, He is coming! When there has been darkness all around and the light seems to have been extinguished, believers in Christ, knowing that He is the light of the world, have turned to one another and have told each other, Behold, He is coming! when the world has turned against us and when it is not even safe to be in our own homes, but that the knock at the door will come to drag us out. Behold, he is coming. And when he comes, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. I think of it this way, that the day comes when eyes are lifted heavenward. Everyone looks to the heavens. The world begins to say, who is that? Who is that coming in the clouds? And those of us who know him and love him will answer back with one voice. It is Jesus And I'm telling you this, at the name of Jesus, whoosh! every knee bows. Things in heaven, things on earth, things underneath the earth. And every tongue starts confessing, this Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is coming. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail and weep and mourn on account of him. I would like to tell you that this is because there will be deep sorrow and contrition over sin. And those who see Jesus will suddenly realize the mistake they they have made. And and will now claim him as Lord and that the the tears are tears of, of, of sorrow over sin but I think the best reading of the text as you compare it to the Old Testament, uh, quotation, it's quoting the Old Testament. You see that it's sorrow over judgment for Jesus is coming to redeem his own and his coming to tread the winepress of God's wrath. God will not abide sin forever and God will not endure the insult and the offense of our sin against him forever. He is coming. And when he comes, those who have rejected him will reject him still. And those who hate him will hate him still. And those who want nothing to do with him will be happy to be pushed away from him in judgment to the lake of fire. There is a judgment coming. Because when our God comes, he comes in love and he comes in mercy, but he also comes in justice and righteousness. When he comes, he comes to redeem his own, but when he comes, he brings the judgment of his wrath upon all sin, unrighteousness, injustice, and wickedness. That's how serious these Days are. And so he's coming, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him will see him. Not just those who drove the nails into his hands and the spear into his side, but all those who have pierced him by their rejection and their refusal to acknowledge him. They will see him, and they will weep for the judgment that is coming. Beloved, you know he's coming You know he is coming. The time is now to prepare. The time is now to be set right with the God who is and who was and who is to come. Verse 7 ends with a prayer. Even so, let it be. Even so, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come and let your glory be known that we might worship and adore you for all eternity. You see, in a moment we will come to the Lord's table. And here at the Lord's table we partake of the cup and the bread, symbolizing the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins and that we have salvation in him. We come to the table to remember that fact. But as the scripture is read, listen closely and, and hear that thus, when we come to the table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are living in between the two great facts of history. The fact of Jesus Christ, son of God, The Word incarnate, come to die on a cross in our place, raised from the grave by the power of the Spirit and the glory of the resurrection, ascended into heaven, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We live between these two facts. And at the table of our Lord, we proclaim his death until he comes. Would you pray with me, please? Father as so often as we worship you we still do not quite understand the full extent of your glory and majesty even for those of us who for years have sought to learn about you there's still so much more and then we remember the work of Christ on the cross for us and we are even more overwhelmed by the greatness of your love and mercy. Add to that the power of the Holy Spirit and we can only fall on our knees in praise and adoration. We worship you, Father, but may you so move our hearts that the worship of this hour would become the worship of our whole lives so that all we are and everything we do would be for the praise of your glory in Christ and that when our Lord comes, he will find faith in our hearts upon the earth. You, Father, alone are worthy of such praise. Thank you for bringing us to know even this small part of who you are. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing our final song as we do. The call of God's grace goes out as the Spirit moves your heart. Respond quickly and obediently.